We, uh, what's going on outside, huh? We, uh, I think October and November got confused. Seems like we're going in the, the wrong direction, or maybe the right direction. Maybe that means December's going to feel like September. I don't know what's going on out there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians. As always, the verses will be on the screen uh, when I preach. Uh, there also are free Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, if you don't own one, and we want you to be in the Word, not just on Sunday mornings, but, but every single day, not to gain merit with the Father, but to know Him better and to understand His heart for you. So we have those available. You're free to take a copy. We won't even charge you. Um, we're working through this study on 2 Corinthians. We're um, going to finish up chapter 1 and, and just start to get into chapter 2 this morning. Today's message is called A, a Change of Plans, and, and what we're going to be looking at today is how to deal with false accusations. Probably all of us have experienced it personally or someone close to us where maybe a, an assumption made about you, a conclusion was drawn, um, maybe someone pointed a finger at you, maybe even someone you know well, you were misrepresented, you were maligned, your name was drugged through the dirt. And the question is, how do we respond in those situations? What, what, sh- what should our reaction be, and how do we deal with those things? And this is the context that Paul finds himself in, um, in, in this portion of the letter, in this so dear to his heart. They've made false accusations toward him. And what's, being, what's happening here is Paul is actually being attacked by these false teachers, these other leaders in the church. And what they're trying to do, ultimately, is they want to get rid of Paul so that they can take the throne, right? So that the people will follow them instead. And so what they're doing is they're attacking the very core of who Paul is. They're calling into question his integrity. Because if they can get the church to question Paul's integrity and his trustworthiness and say, we can't follow this guy, then perhaps they'll follow these guys instead. So what do they attack? What vile Paul do they point a finger at? Well, Paul was in Ephesus at this time, and he had told the church, hey, I'm going up to Macedonia, and I'm going to stop by and see you on the way up there. And then he was going to go out of his way, go across the sea to see them, then go to Macedonia, and then on the way back to see them a second time. Well, what actually ended up happening is Paul only came once. So this whole mountain of evidence of Paul's untrustworthiness is based on him coming, his slight change of itinerary, that he only visits them once instead of twice. And you think, what in the world? How is, how is everything based on that? But don't we know that it's never about what it's about? Right? It's never, that's never the main problem. Like, how many times? World War III in your home or with people start over debates like, does the toilet paper go over the top or under the bottom, right? Over the top, obviously. But we go at each other. I have never had more heated debates in my life than over which one's better, Miracle Whip or mayonnaise. And I'm sorry if you don't like flavor, then go with mayonnaise, whatever. I was once kicked out. I'm not, I wish I was joking. I was kicked out of a subway, the, the restaurant, because I was arguing with somebody the merits of whether or not cheerleading is a sport. <laughs> this is my grandpa in the middle uh, doing his thing. I followed a different path. Um, <laughs> but it's never about these things, right? With, we don't actually care. Mayonnaise is not that hard. And it's never about what it's about. And this is not about Paul's travel plans. This is about saying that if you can't trust Paul's travel plans, then can't trust him 
and you can't trust his message. That's what they're trying to say here. And so how does Paul follow the example of Christ? How do we follow the example of Paul and respond to these false accusations that come our way in a manner that might glorify our God and love our brothers and sisters? This is what, in his autobiography of a bleeding heart, he wants to show us this morning. How to address an accusation. Three things that he's going to show us. Uh, The first of which is confrontation. That we are called as believers to seek the truth. We're going to confront three things in our lives. The first one that he calls us to confront is our conscience. Paul says, this is chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, verse 12. This is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. The first thing that Paul examines is his own conscience. Now, in the English word for conscience, we see two things going on. There's con, that means with, and science, which means knowledge. So it means with knowledge. Or in other words, it conveys the idea of knowing one's self. It's a sense of what is right and what is wrong. And always let your conscience be your guide, right? That is, John MacArthur, he called it this. He called the conscience our soul's warning system. It's our soul's warning system. He, he, it's that little voice inside of us that says, you're not, you're not doing what you should be doing, or you are doing what you should be doing. He goes on to say, it's like the gift of pain, which warns you that you are hurting your body so that you don't kill yourself. The gift of conscience warns you that you are killing your soul. Just like when I put my hand on that stove, and the nerves in my fingers say, take your hand off that stove, or you're going to injure yourself. The conscience tells us, don't go down that road, there's only injury. And and, and what Paul is saying, he says, listen, my soul's warning system is not going off. As I look at my conscience, I've been dealing with you all in holiness, in sincerity. And this word sincerity is really interesting that he uses. It's a compound word in the Greek, and it means two things. The first word means the heat of the sun. The second word means to judge. So what he's saying is, it's, it's, this idea would be to hold something up in the light of the sun to examine it to see if it's pure and true. And what Paul's boast is, he says, if you took my motives and you held them up to the, to the light, you'll see that I've been dealing with you in all godliness and sincerity. I've been loving you as God has asked me, called me, love you. He was confident in that. He boasted in that. And the reason that this is such a big deal to Paul is because Paul understands that the conscience is the highest human court of appeal. The highest human court of appeal. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Let's say that you were accused of murder. Okay, Hopefully that has not happened to you. You're accused of murder, and you go to trial, and you keep going up the court system, and you finally go all the way to Washington, D.C., and you go to the Supreme Court, and you stand before this jury, and you are tried, and you're delivered an innocent uh, verdict. You walk away exonerated from the highest court of our nation. But if you actually did it, you're still guilty. You cannot escape the indictment of your conscience. And that still weighs upon you. Higher than even the Supreme Court, the highest court of appeal in, the, in, in humanity is our own conscience. And have you ever felt that before? Where you fooled everyone else. 
Everyone else thinks you're good, but you haven't fooled your conscience. Now, what, what Paul says here, and what's interesting, is he says, we've done so. We've, we've, I, I've found my, my conduct according to my conscience to be sincere. But he says, not according to worldly wisdom. He says, I'm not banking on my own worldly wisdom to know that what I'm doing is right. If you go back to 1 Corinthians, he's a little bit more clear with this, and I think this is important for us. He understands that we can't even trust our own conscience. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges. So the conscience is the highest human court of appeal, but he says there's a judge that goes beyond that. And I'm not even trusting my own conscience. He says, therefore, let nothing before the appointed time, uh, let judge nothing before the appointed time, wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. See, our heart, the Old Testament tells us, is desperately wicked and deceitful. And we can't even trust our own conscience, our own ability to know right and wrong. That is up to the Lord to decide. See, our conscience is kind of like the nerves on the tips of our fingers. Over time, if you continue to touch that stove over and over again, what happens? You develop calluses. And before you know it, you can't feel anymore, and your, 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 your nerves don't work. And over time, Paul says in Timothy that we can develop a seared conscience. If we continue to go down that path, before you know it, that warning system doesn't work anymore. Our conscience could also be compared to a skylight. It's not a lamp that produces its own light in us. It's a skylight is determined by the light that it's exposing itself to and by how clean that window is. So if we continue to turn that, turn, turn that window towards sinful things... And we don't keep it clean, before you know it, there's no light coming in, and we don't know right from wrong. And we see that all throughout our world. And that's why Paul says that this clear conscience and conduct, he says, is not based on worldly wisdom, but what? According to God's grace. According to God's grace. His boast was not in his conscience, but in God's grace to convict him when he needed convicting. His hope was not in his own ability to know right and wrong, but the God who is faithfully leading him. So when someone accuses you, they come to you and they accuse you of something, the first step is to take it before the Lord and say, am I in the wrong here? Is there something in me that's wrong? Even if, you, if you're almost 100% sure that that's a lie, or you even know that they're coming with wrong intention, we always ought to examine our conscience, take it to the Lord in prayer, and say, God, is there something that you're trying to show me here? Is there something in my heart? Is there something in my attitudes? Is there something in my actions that need to change? Always, always need to be doing that, humbly before Him. And then if your conscience is clean... You need to forgive your accuser. You need to let it go. And we need to move forward. Because we're accountable to God, ultimately. And we keep following him. First thing we're called to is to confront our conscience. The second thing we're called to confront through Paul's example here is our accuser. It's so much easier, is it not, to just play that martyr card? Like, oh, I'm the victim. 
the man is just crushing me here. Um, it's so terrible. Or we just, we take that accusation and we turn around and we complain to other people. It's, it's so much more easy just to gossip about it, to, talk, to spread it around to others, um, to let it fester, to let it embitter you. And what Paul's example here is he says, no, what you need to do is you need to confront now, when we hear this word confront, don't we often kind of have a negative connotation with that word? Oftentimes, one of the definitions of confront means to face with hostility, oppose defiantly. When you think of someone who's being confrontational, we think of this, you know, this combative spirit that we're coming and we're swinging punches at each other. But we can build in a much, much more healthy definition into the word confront and the way that we go about this. Confront can also mean to come face to face with to stand in front of, to literally just go to the person and look them in the eyeball. It can also mean to bring close together for comparison or examination. So in other words, we come to this person, I look them face to face, and they say, let's sit down and let's figure this out. Let's talk about it. Let's see where you're coming from, where I'm coming from, and, and, and let's get to the bottom of this. Now that's exactly what we find Paul doing here in, in this chapter. He says, my letters have been straightforward. Listen, I've told you exactly what's going on. I've come right to you. And there is nothing written between the lines. Nothing you can't understand. I hope someday you will fully understand us, even if you don't fully understand us now. Then on the day when our Lord Jesus comes back, you'll be proud of us in the same way we are proud of you. Paul, as we saw in our introduction, he has gone to this church already two or three times. He's written, this is his fourth letter he's written to them. Paul continually takes the approach of, I need, we need, if there's something between us, I need to come to you and we need to figure this out face to face. But the question is, not just whether or not to go to the person, but how to go to them, right? How do we confront this person? And we need to remember the principles of confrontation that we see in James. That we need to be quick to listen, we need to be slow to speak, and we need to be slow to anger. When I come to that person who's wrongly accused me, am I just coming to tell my side of the story and to force the truth down their throats? Or am I willing to listen to their side, to hear them out? Am I coming in a manner that's hostile and angry? Or have I come to that person in forgiveness? And here's what I think is probably the most important part. Is our goal in confrontation truly to seek reconciliation with that person? Is it to see unity with them? Or do we just want to be right? Do we just want to win the argument? Do we just want to shame them? Get revenge on them? Or is my heart really to see us be reconciled? Perhaps me or them or both be reconciled to our God? That must be the driving force in this confrontation, or it will get ugly. So Paul says, confront your conscience, confront your accuser. Then thirdly, confront your record. Confront your record. And later on in chapter 12, Paul says this, I don't want anyone to think more highly of me than what they can actually see in my life and my message. He says, here's, here's how I want to be esteemed, according to what I've done. Don't just listen to the words that I've said. It's my life message. The way that I've conducted myself in you and the world, that's what I want you to look at and examine. And he comes to these people and he says, my, this church, he says, my letters have been straightforward. I've told you exactly what I'm doing. You've always known that. I hope someday you'll fully understand this, that you'll be able to look at my track record and see it. He says later in verse 18, I'm not that sort of person. My yes means yes. He says, look at my life and examine it. Look at Am I that kind of person? 
And can you say this in good conscience to your accuser? Does your track record hold up when you examine it in light? Or is there a pattern in your life that might give some credibility to the accusation that's being made against you? Maybe you didn't do it this time, but the last 12 times you did. And it takes a lot longer, as we all have experienced, to gain trust than to lose it. It takes a lot longer to gain trust, to build trust, than to lose it. So Paul says the first step is to confront. The second step is confirmation of this truth. God is truth. God defines his truth in himself. Paul goes on, he gets into this kind of what they're accusing him of here in verse 15. He says, because I was confident of this, I plan to visit you first so that you might benefit twice, meaning coming to you twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. That's what we referenced earlier. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? Paul's asking some rhetorical questions here, implying, of course, I'm not this way. He says, I'm not fickle. I don't don't say yes out of one side of my mouth and no out of the other side of my mouth. You know me better than that. Then I love what he says next in verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. Paul's argument here, he says, you know how I know that I'm not a vacillator? You know how I know that what I'm saying to you is true? says, my confirmation is based on the character of God. My God is faithful. Other translations say that he is true. And I want us to just, I want us to marvel for a second, that we serve a God who is faithful. That we serve a God who does not deceive us. He doesn't tell us one thing and do another. He doesn't make promises to us as his children and then not come through. And imagine the chaos that we would live in if God was different than this. What kind of a God would we be serving? And Albert Barnes, what he says is, he says this idea of the faithfulness of God is the argument which Paul urges why he felt himself bound to be faithful also. It's a little bit weirdly worded, but his point is, Paul Paul says, because God is that faithful, because God is that true, how could I be any different? It says, being, being fickle, changing my mind, deceiving you as this precious church that I love, that would fly in the face of who God is and who I've been called to be and to be made like. But now don't we know, I mean, just, just because God is faithful doesn't automatically mean we are, right? We've seen too often in our own hearts and in the lives of others this extreme unfaithfulness that we can have to him and toward other people. And that's why Paul takes this a step further in verse 21. He says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He says, the only way that any of us have the ability to be true to our word, for our yes to be yes and our no to be no, is not based on our own strength. The only thing that's going to give root to our tree when the winds come to knock us over, the only thing that's going to help our little toddler legs stand and walk is the one that's holding us, carrying us through. Our ability to be faithful rests in God's faithfulness to keep us faithful. And so he defines his truth in himself. And then secondly, he declares his truth in Jesus. 
declares his truth in Jesus. Verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. Jesus is a Jesus who always says yes, and you will not find a more beautiful verse in this book and perhaps all of Scripture. He says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. All of God's promises are yes in Christ. Everything that God said to us, the promises he's made for us, have come true at that point in time when Jesus died on the cross for us and then rose again to give us new life. All of his promises have, been, have come to fruition in the person and the work of Jesus. And so what I want to, and then our, our response here, he says, we say amen. And we said that, I was thinking about that this morning when Jacob prayed and we all said amen. We kind of, amen, you know, amen. We kind of go through the motions. This word amen, it means so it is, yes, truly. It's a, it's a confirmation. It's a beautiful word that in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the word to believe was Amen. So when God told Abraham, I know you're a hundred years old, and I know you, should, you have no business having any kids, I'm going to give you descendants that outnumber the stars in the sky. And Abraham said, Amen. Amen. I believe, and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. And what I want to do this morning is, I want to do this. I want us to look at a few of God's promises to say that they are yes in Christ, and then we're going to verbally respond, Amen. It is true. It is so. When a sinful person meets the holy God in Christ, God's answer to us is yes. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to say yes because of Jesus. And then I'm going to say, and so we say, and you'll all say, hey, very good. All right. So when we come to God and we ask him, God, will you love me? He says yes. Because of Jesus. And so we say. Amen. Say, will you accept me? Will you accept me just as I am? Scars and all. He says, yes. Because of Jesus. And so we say. Amen. It is so. Will you help me change? Will you stay by my side faithfully day after day after day, even when I exchange you for other lovers? He says, yes, because of Jesus. And so we say. Amen. Will you help me? Will you give me the power to serve you? He says, yes, in and through my son, because of Jesus. And so we say. Will you keep me? Will you keep me from falling? Will you sustain me with your grace? He says, yes, I will, because of Jesus. And so we say, Amen. will you show me your glory? Will you show me yourself, God? He says, I will, and that is manifest in my son, Jesus. It's because of him that we can see God. And so we say, Amen. will I live with you forever? Is this true? Will you come through on your promises? Am I really going to spend eternity with you, God? He says, yes, because of Jesus. And so we all say, amen. amen. Paul confirms that he can be faithful because his God is faithful. 
and that faithfulness, it showed its face in the person that came to this earth in swaddling clothes and died for you and me. But then he doesn't stop there. God delivers his truth in the Spirit. He delivers his truth in the Spirit. Look at what he says. He anointed us. This is the work of the Spirit. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This is so incredible. The Spirit does three things in our hearts to deliver this truth, to to bring it to fruition in our lives through Christ. The first thing it does is he he anoints us. This word anoint, in, in this time, kings and priests would be commissioned. They would be anointed with oil. And there was two things that would come of this. Number one, that was showing that they were set apart for service. Say, here's your task. We're anointing you with oil to set you apart for this. The second thing it did was it gave them the power to do so. We're empowering you to do what you've been called to do. And here's the amazing truth. If you're a believer this morning, God has placed his Holy Spirit in you. And what this has done is this has set us apart for a service, for a task, for a job that each of us have been given to do, and we've been given the power through the Spirit to do every single thing that he's ever asked us to do. And what this is called, this is the priesthood of believers. What I mean by that, it's not, it's not just the preacher that does the work of God. It's not the Pope, people that are paid, Billy Graham. Every single person that has come to know Jesus has been given the Holy Spirit, has been set apart for this task, disciples of all nations, of pointing people to God's Son, and we've been given everything we need for life and godliness through the Spirit. Secondly, we have this seal of ownership. At this time, when the king would, he would take, he would take his insignia, oftentimes it was on his ring, and there would be this wax that they would put on a, a signed document, a sealed envelope, and he would seal it with his, that stamp, and what that would do is that would ratify it, saying, this is mine. And it would convey two ideas. Number one, it would give the king's authority, saying this is from the, this statement that you're hearing is from the king, so you better pay attention. And secondly, it implied ownership. This comes from him. And when God gave us the Holy Spirit, it did t- it, what he did is he was telling our hearts and telling the rest of the world, that one's mine. Don't touch him. It's his protection on us to say that we come with the authority of God Almighty and that I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Number three, oops, can't barely read it. It says deposit. It's a deposit. He says the Holy Spirit is a deposit to guarantee what is to come. Think in terms of the wedding ring. The wedding ring, or sorry, the engagement ring. When you slip that engagement ring on the finger, it says, I promise that one day more is coming. Right now, I just love you, but I'm going to make you my wife forever until death do us part, I guess, to be theologically correct. More is coming. And this idea, this is, this is a down payment. The Holy Spirit is a down payment. It's the first installment of much more. It guarantees that the rest is coming. When he gives us the Holy Spirit, he says, you just wait. There's a lot more in store for us as believers that we're going to one day realize when we see him face to face. Paul says in Romans 8, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He says one day we're going to get brand new bodies. Hallelujah. He says one day you're going to be fully realized as God's son. 
And, and this Holy Spirit is the engagement ring that guarantees the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we know through the Spirit that his yes is yes, and God will be faithful to his promise to return for his bride. And so Paul confronts his conscience, his accusers, and his record. He confirms his faithfulness based on the character and grace of God, declared through Jesus, delivered to us through the Spirit. And then the last point that we want to look at this morning is confession, that love tells the truth. Far more important than the truth is love. What did Paul say in Corinthians? I, I, if I don't have love, I have nothing. I have nothing. And so Paul says that love tells the truth with the other in mind. He says, I call God, verse 23, as my witness, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Now and only now, after establishing those important truths, does he explain why he didn't come in the first place? He says, it wasn't because I was a liar. It's not because I'm fickle. It's not because I'm untrustworthy. It was for your own sake. Wouldn't they feel silly? He says, it was for your benefit that I didn't come. Not for mine. You see, he wanted to give them, and we're going to see, he gets more clear with this later, but he wanted to give them more time to deal with their sins. This church was still pretty steeped in, in, in some pretty gross sin. And he wanted to give them time to deal with that. So that when he came, he didn't have to come and rain down on them. He said in 1 Corinthians, should I come with a rod? I don't want to come and have to discipline. I don't want to have to correct you guys. I don't want that. So I'm giving you more time to get right with God, to repent. See, love is willing to say the hard thing. It's willing to do the hard thing. And Paul was willing, and he's done it with them and with others in the past. We've seen that from his record. But love is also patient, and it's kind. And it's willing to wait for the other to come around. And this is what God does with us. Second Peter says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return, as some people think. Some people say, well, why hasn't God come back yet? What's the problem? Is he not real? Does he not care? Why has it been 2,000 years since Jesus left and we still don't see anything? Well, he tells us why. He says, no, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to perish, so he's giving more time for everyone to repent. God looks down from heaven, and he says, I want more to come to me. I want more to be my sons and daughters. In fact, I want everyone to know me and to live with me forever. So I'm giving them some more time. Giving them some more time. Do we make our decisions with the best of others in mind? The things that we do, is it for the best of others, for their good? Even if that person has wronged us, has, has that, that accuser, that person who's wounded us, that's what Paul's doing here. These people have torn Paul to shreds, and he's continuing to act with their best interest in mind. That's not hard for us to do. That is impossible for us to do, apart from the work of the Spirit in our hearts. God, that we would see people like that. Secondly, he says, love tells the truth with the other in equality. You follow his argument here. He says, not that we lorded over your faith. Paul was an apostle, okay, from the Lord. He's been given this authority, as Timothy and Silas had. He said, we're not coming lording. I'm not going to throw my apostolic weight around and just, just try to lord it over you, to try to force you into something here. So that's not my aim. But look at what he says, and this is beautiful. He says, but we work with you for your joy. We work with you. We come alongside you as equals, as partners. Paul's main object with this church is to promote their joy. 
And so he says, because that's my heart, because that's what I want to see from you, here's his reasoning. Because it is by faith that you stand firm. It is by faith that you stand firm. You see, in other words, Paul says, I can't have your faith for you. I can't make you believe. I can't, I mean, imagine, I mean, he says, I can't come in with a spiritual whip and saying, you know, be happy, you know, be joyful, love Jesus, smile. Like, he said, I can't force that upon you. That's got to be something that comes from your own heart. And too often I see this happening, this spiritual bullying from pastors or leaders or individual relationships where people are, are attempting to control others' faith. And he said, listen, that's not what I want to see. If you're going to make it as a believer, if you're going to stand firm, it's only happening one way, and that is the joy of a personal faith in Jesus. We work together to point each other to Jesus, to find that untouchable joy in him. And then the final point is that love tells the truth with the other in compassion. He finishes his statement on this thought in the beginning of chapter 2. And I want us to look at this, these four verses, and watch how dripping with emotion they are coming from Paul. He says, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. And I picture Paul leaning over this letter as he's writing it, just staining it with his tears. This man cared so deeply for these people. And he says, I just couldn't come back to you and go through another painful visit. We saw his second visit was was really rough, and then he wrote this really harsh letter afterwards. He said, I don't want to go back there. That's too hard. That's too sorrowful for me and for you. He says, I want to see repentance. I want our next meeting to be filled with joy and encouragement. I want to see you walking with the Lord. And do we have this kind of compassion for other people? I mean, do we, you know, the scripture says we weep with those that weep. Do do we have the empathy that when someone else is is going through pain, that we feel it as though we were going through it? Think of the Mayberries and what they've gone through this last week and the Jackson family for these last several years. You know, and we can't feel the pain of everybody. The people that God's put in our lives, do we weep as though we are the ones suffering? But on the other hand, do we rejoice as though we're the ones seeing the victory in our lives. When we see other people overcome temptation and and answer God's calling in their life, do we get as jacked up as though it was happening to us? Like, this is the community and the compassion that we see with Paul for this church and what we ought to have toward each other as believers. So in conclusion, when, when accusations come your way, when someone points the finger at you, when they attack you and they misrepresent you, and it might be by somebody that you even thought was on your side, will we respond like Paul responded? Will we, and, and, and this is where it all boils down to, will we focus on the one that knows your heart? Will we, like Jesus, when he was on that cross, will we keep our eyes on the Father? And, and, and ask the question, Lord, what is it that you're teaching me in this? What is it that you're teaching me in Is there something that ought to change inside of me? An attitude, an action, a behavior? 
a thought toward another? Are you, are you, are you asking me to, to confront this person? Are you simply teaching me, as Jesus did on the cross, to be able to say to those who are maligning me, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Look to the one who loves you, who knows your heart, who knows your conscience, and follow him. Father, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with us. You're never going to leave us. You're never going to forsake us. You show us in your word in this passage this morning that you are a faithful God and that we know that all of our questions are answered yes in Christ. That it's because of what he's done for us and who he is in us that you're never going to leave us or forsake us. That you will forgive. That you do as accept us just as we are. That that's based on him. That you're going to continue to grow us and to use these trials. To use these times of false accusation to teach us about yourself and how to love other people. God, may we trust in not our own conscience, but on your grace to preserve us, to cause us to stand firm in you, no matter what's thrown our way. Father, may we experience that work of your Spirit in us, that you've set us apart for this good work, that you've given us this down payment, that one day Jesus is coming back for us, and he's going to make us his bride. May we keep our eyes on you in the meantime, and continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our faithful God, as seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.